Good evening. I do appreciate you being here tonight because I know you made a choice and you didn't have to show up, but you did and I appreciate that. I also appreciate the words to the music we sang because I believe it sets the stage for what I want to talk about tonight. As we talked about uh, saying about the word of God, I, I think of uh, the song, I like the song, Speak, O Lord. There is a, a third stanza that has an interesting phrase in it. It says, Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plan for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by grace we'll stand on your promises. And by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord. We sing tonight about trusting God's word. But yet I find as I look at back at my own life, there are times when I really didn't trust what God's word said. And a lot of times that comes when we're trying to engage our culture and engage the things our culture believes. I've entitled the message tonight, Creeds of the Crowd, because as we look around today and we look at the culture, we do indeed see that there are a lot of creeds that are driving and pushing our culture. And a creed, if you look the word up, it is a set of beliefs, principles, or opinions that strongly influence the way people live or work. We are out in that culture every day as God's people, as God's children. And I ask the question of myself, and you know, you can ask it of yourself if it fits. How well are we at engaging our culture with the truths of the Word of God? I mean, if we believe it's true, if we believe it's faithful, if we believe it's eternal, it's not going to change no matter what the creed of the culture is. Solomon wrote some interesting words in Proverbs 14, and he is contrasting the results of lives lived by different creeds. And beginning in about verse 22, he says, They do not go astray who devise evil. Those who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. In the fear of the Lord, one has a strong confidence and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people a prince is ruined. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And he goes on and he comes down uh, in verse 33. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, 
but it makes itself known even in the midst of fool. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. If you study world history, you understand that there are creeds that have driven cultures at different times. People walk through history, and if you look at some of their beliefs and their opinions, uh, you know, we could take the time to do that tonight. We're simply not because of the time involved. But if you study world history, you can see what was driving cultures at the time. As believers, we have creeds. There are things we believe as we come together and worship here at Altoona Regular Baptist Church. Some of those creeds are spelled out in our doctrinal statement. Some of those are spelled out in our covenant that we read together. Those are things that we are saying that we believe, that we abide by, that drive our lives. That we want to live out every day. And I just want to look at some creeds tonight that I believe are very strongly influencing our culture and the way that people live and work today. And I believe it's a creed that we need to be ready to defend and stand against when necessary from the Word of God. And that is simply my purpose tonight is to take these familiar creeds. You're going to recognize them because you've seen them. Some of them are on yard signs in your neighborhood. And they simply state some things that they say that our culture needs to believe. Here they are. And we're just simply going to look at them from a little... from. Uh, a biblical perspective, maybe give you some ideas if you engage our culture and conversation about these creeds and what the Word of God says, that we can stand firm on it. So here's the creed. We believe black lives matter. No human is illegal. Love is love. Women's rights are human rights. Science is real. Water is life, and injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. If you, you see those, those are familiar creeds that are driving our culture. So I ask, how do we, as followers of Jesus Christ, those who by divine design live in this current age, where these creeds are driving our culture and driving our statement or driving uh, how they live, how, what do we say? Maybe we even take a step back further. Should we say anything? I believe we need to be ready to respond. And I believe that we need to respond because people around us are living according to these creeds. And I believe the Word of God says we need to be able to give an answer to every man of the hope that is within us. And that involves engaging our culture in conversation about what they believe and about what Word of God says. And I believe there's a biblical example for this. If you take your Bible in the book of Acts, again, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul just real quickly. He did this very thing in Acts chapter 17. 
He found himself in Athens, an epicenter of the known world at that time, the one that was generating all kinds of ideas and anything new came out of Athens. And it was the place where all the thinkers went and all of those who movers and shakers that were going to influence the world, that's where they went and, and that's where they met. And Paul was there in Acts chapter 17, in verse 16, just see where the setting that Paul finds himself in. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Those were their statements of creeds, those different idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So here he is in this center of world truth where people were practicing various creeds and Paul was willing to go there and, and as we say where I come from, put his two cents worth in. He had something that he believed that he wanted to say and he went to the place where people were exchanging ideas and was willing to say it. And I thought about that. I'm saying, would I have been willing to go into that marketplace and take on these people? Would I have been willing to exchange ideas with them and tell with them what I believe the truth of the word of God said and suffer what those results may be? Paul was willing to do that. And it goes on, tells us in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? That tells you what they thought. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and resurrection. And they took him and brought him into Aragopas saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? They wanted a further examination. For you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. They hadn't heard anything like Paul was telling them before. And they were willing to listen. They, they were analyzing and evaluating the creeds of the various cultures that collected there. So how did Paul respond? Let's keep reading. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find them, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. 
And you can read on about the response that Paul was there, but he was willing to defend the truths of the word of God in a culture that had creeds that were opposed to what Paul believed. And as we look at the creeds of our culture, I think we need to be prepared to lovingly go to the word of God and say, here's what God says about this. And the first statement we read was about Black Lives Matter. And that's a true statement. It's a true statement because all lives matter. And they matter because they are human beings created in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, we can go back and, and we can show them and show the world. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. I mean that statement right there, how many of our cultural creeds today does that address? I mean that we didn't mention them all in our statements but, I mean, there's a lot of issues out there today that that one statement deals with very simply, very succinctly. It's a truth of the Word of God. We say it. Last time I looked in our church constitution, it said we believe in the Genesis account of creation that God created all men and created everything in uh, 24 hour days, just like Scripture says. And yet as we are engaging in these discussions, how confident are we to go back and say, wait a minute, this is how God created things. And as you think about it, there is really only one race and that's the human race. In fact, it's interesting, two different times in the Bible we find that we all have a common ancestor. Adam and Eve, and Noah. Every one of us, if we believe Scripture, can go back to those two points of time and say, we're all related. We're all one. And because we are created in the image of God, all of our lives matter. In fact, they matter so much that the Lord Jesus came to die for us. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's talking about the whole human race, every one of us. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. And the last phase of Romans 3.22 says there is no distinction. And Romans 3.24 goes on to say that in the same manner all are sinners... And all who are sinners can be justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Those are truths of scripture that we can turn to to address that issue and, and talk about that. The second statement there that... Uh, is our culture is saying they believe is that no human is illegal. That too is true. It's not illegal to be human. That's the way God created us. That's how he created us. 
But let's be honest, if we go back to the truths of Scripture, we understand that we as humans do illegal things, things that are against the law of God, things that are against the law of our land, because of our sin nature. We do that. We go back to, again, the beginning in Genesis in the garden where God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the Garden of Eden. What happened? Someone came along and challenged them in what God was saying. Say, well, I know this is what you think God said, but he really meant this. I know he said don't eat, but I want you to eat. And with the eating, that was for lack of a better term, or using their term, an illegal action because it violated the law that God had set down. And as we move through scriptures, we learn truths like, you know, we are all guilty of breaking the laws of God. And because of that, and because of that situation, Jesus Christ came to die on the cross of Calvary. He came to pay for those sins. He came to give us a righteousness. Paul sums it up this way in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death passed upon all men because all have sinned. And so, yes... As humans, we break the law. And when we break the law, that creates some issues that have to be dealt with. But if we look at it from God's perspective, He understands that and He has provided a solution through Jesus Christ. And even though we don't deserve heaven... He has provided it for us. He has paid for it through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that's a truth that we can use to visit with these folks. I don't know about you, but I rejoice that God has provided a way for us to be forgiven. Because every day we all do things that from God's perspective would be considered illegal and breaking his law and deserve the penalty of death. But we have a way out. The third statement, love is love. That may also be true, but is every love the same? I love steak. I love my grandchildren, and I love my wife. They're different. A mother is willing, possibly, to give her life for her child or her children, but I doubt she's going to give her life for a T-bone steak. It's a different level of love. It's a different kind of love. And not all love is good. The love of money is the root of all evil, the Bible tells us. The love of physical stimulation can lead to all kinds of things that are bad and evil. And so what exactly are we talking about? 
Well, here's what the Bible says about love. The Bible tells us that God is love. In John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John carries that discussion of love further in 1 John, where he writes in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Let's talk about that love. Or another chapter over in 1 John 4, 10 and 11. And this is love. You want to know what love is? Here's love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. That's a great place to take a discussion on what love is. And how we ought to, what the real source of love is. And how we ought to be demonstrating that love to a lost and dying world. Another statement in that creed are women's rights are human rights. But again, what rights are we talking about? Probably in the discussion you would get to the point that it indicates a right to abort an unborn child. And is that really a human right? What does God's perspective on that? Well, let's go to Psalm 139, 13 through 19 to see what God thinks about those unborn children. Here's what he writes. For you were formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricacy woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that formed for me when I was yet there was none of them. And the psalmist is saying, God, before I was even conceived, you knew all about me. You had a purpose and plan for my life. God is concerned. God cares. God loves. And that would tell me that we don't have the right to make a decision about those types of things. God told Jeremiah, now the word of the Lord came to me. Jeremiah saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's what the word of God says. And we live in a culture that needs to be confronted with that truth. As we enter in those discussions lovingly, with broken hearts. But that's what the Word of God says. That's not a right that we have. That's God's. It's life that He created. Here's one of my favorite. Science is real. Here's how I thought about that. Well, real science is real. 
But not everything that we're calling science today really is science. You want to see science, go up to the roof of the church, drop a ball off. Do it five times a day. When you go back tomorrow and you drop a ball off the roof, what's going to happen? Same thing. If you do it every day for the rest of your life, guess what's going to happen? The same thing. That's a scientific fact. Because it's verifiable, it's repeatable, and it's always going to do just what it's done the last time. We need to understand, folks, that a lot of things that are being thrown in the science category today are not real science. They are hypotheses. They are what men who have chosen to leave God out of the equation have come up with. And by repeating some of those truths, those hypotheses often enough, they assume that we'll accept them as truth, but the ultimate source of truth is still the Word of God. Science is a methodology. And, as, and think about that. Why does science work? Why was every time you drop that ball off the roof, why does it work? Random chance? No, because God created everything to work the way he did. And living on this sphere, there's a gravitational force that is going to be there as long as this earth exists, that every time you drop something off a roof, it's going to go down. That's science. A lot of things today, as I said, that are being talked about are not science. And again, we can depend on that because Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. John gives us a little more insight in 1 John 1.3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And you can read Psalm 8. There are some great phrases there as the psalmist writes about the creation and how God formed everything. And then one that earth scientists ignored for centuries is in Isaiah 40.22 where it says that God sits above the circle of the earth. And think about all those centuries that scientists believed the earth was flat. And that if Columbus sailed far enough, he was going to fall off the end. When Isaiah said, centuries before Columbus ever sailed, God sits on the circle of the globe. Even science is based on biblical truth. Real science is based on biblical truth. And we need to understand that. Real science is real because of God and His divine design and His planning. We need to be willing to stand on that truth. It isn't popular, but it's the truth based on the Word of God. Another phrase, water is life. It's necessary for life. But I even like what the word of God says about that. Remember the encounter of Jesus and the woman at the well? She came for water because it was necessary for her to live. She came in the heat of the day. Remember what Christ encountered her with? They discussed 
the well and the water and how he needed a drink and was thirsty and, and it was all physical water, right? No. He says, this is not what, this is important, but there's something more important. And if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for the water of life. Living water. That's what's important. That's where life really is. In fact, John writes again later in his life in 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's what is life. It's life as a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is a life that's going to last for all eternity with Him in heaven. That should be enough to get you thinking on that one. The next phrase deals with injustice. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Not really. If someone gets off scot-free over a crime that they committed in London, it doesn't impact crime in Des Moines. But think about it. Can we as sinful men truly see justice clearly? No. Because we have sin-tainted minds coming from sin-controlled hearts and lives. We really need to understand justice from God's perspective. And when we look at it from his perspective, it, it's about justice, but it's also about redemption. If justice was served, each and every one of us would die and spend eternity in hell. But because of the demand of justice, Jesus was sent to pay the penalty that had to be paid. That's justice. But it allowed us to receive what we didn't deserve, and that is eternal life. In a lot of people's mind, that would be considered injustice. But it's redemption. It's God's plan. And we need to understand when we talk about justice with folks that, yeah, I agree, you know. If it was all just justice... That's how it would be. But God had a divine plan that allowed for a redemption and a salvation. Sinful men cannot have a perfect view of justice. And if you take them to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, you'll see the end of justice. And here's what John saw. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead that were standing there were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. They got justice. And where did it leave them? Left them in eternity, in hell. But we see there was a second book, the book of life. I'm thankful for that book. I'm glad that book exists. 
Because that's not a book of justice. That's a book of love and redemption and salvation. And that the book of life, in fact, in verse 15, he talks about the book of life. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's justice. But we can have our names written in the book of life. And that's the exciting thing about our creeds and what we believe. We have a hopeful message to give to a lost and dying world. We have on all of these issues way to bring them into Scripture and turn them to Scripture and talk to them about their need for Jesus Christ as a Savior. And to talk about his solution for the culture and the world in which we live. And how Christ says in his word that he has overcome the world, but that in the world we're going to experience tribulation and trial. And I don't know how you respond when you see those signs. My purpose tonight was just to get you not to respond in anger or to slough it off, but to think. What does God say? What does God's word say about that? Where could I go to show this individual about the truth of God and the love of God and to show them the way and the path to eternal life? That's what Paul did as he engaged the culture at Athens who had all of these idols and philosophies and all the smart people in the world were there and he just simply told them about, well, you have a statue to a guy that you say we don't know. Let me tell you about him. He created everything and he loves you and he sent his son to die for you on the cross of Calvary. And if you want to know more about him, hang around, I'll tell you. I'm glad Paul responded that way. And I have to ask myself, am I responding that way? Am I taking advantages of those opportunities to interact with our world with the truth of the gospel? The songs that we sing talk about his word is true and we believe it. Our creeds tell us, yes, we believe this is the word of God and he's given us everything in it for life and godliness. Then I would say to you, then go take on the world. Go challenge the culture. Go challenge the creeds. Wherever you hear it and wherever you have an opportunity to interact, take the truths of the word of God with the confidence that Paul did as he stood in that place in Athens and simply preach to them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, whether they believe you or not, that's not on you. You have done your job if you have given them as best you can the truths of Scripture. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to work. We have to allow their hearts to interact. We have to allow God to do a work that we can't do. But we can do what we can do and take them the truths of Scripture.
It was the Lord Jesus who said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And friends, that message is sorely needed in our culture today. And you and I are here wherever God puts us to live and speak that message to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, as we just briefly dealt with some of the beliefs of our culture, some of the things that are driving our culture today, give us discernment and wisdom to understand the forces behind those creeds. And Father, as we come to you with broken hearts, give us the love and the courage to just gently and kindly confront our culture with the Word of God. I think of Paul standing there alone in the Athens marketplace, not with pride or rambunctiousness, but just in simple humility, trusting in you, taking advantage of the opportunity that you gave him. His heart, no doubt, breaking at the idolatry of those around him. And he just clearly and lovingly presented the truths of Scripture. Father, help us in our culture today to do the same. Help us to see that we don't have to have every answer we don't have to meet every argument that they may be raised, but we can tell them what we know about who you are and what you've done. And Father, I just ask that you give us the courage and the love and the concern to reach our culture for your honor and for your glory and for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.